I've entitled my message this morning, Blessings and Bombshells, the Sermon on the Plain. And my concern is that my message today will put us into a state of dissonance, perhaps confusion, or at best confront us with a good uncertainty about what it means to live as Christ followers. And I preach on this text with much hesitancy and trepidation. I have some control over what I say, but I have no control over what you hear. And if there is a passage in the New Testament that I struggle with, it is this Sermon on the Plain, as it's called, a passage so often referred to in, as the Sermon on the Plain, as opposed to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. So, woe is me. This is Luke's confronting presentation of what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And the context is about 85 AD or so, although the actual time frame for Luke could be 5 to 15 years earlier or even 5 to 10 years later. But it's written after Mark was written, and perhaps even after Matthew, which was likely composed in the decade around 80 AD. And while Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is the standard text we focus on regarding these words of Jesus, the presentation in Luke is much shorter and much more prophetic and even harsh, hence my anxiety and resistance. Matthew's Sermon on the Mount takes place up in the mountain, on the heights, on a mountain slope in what almost seems like a picnic setting that we temptingly interpret like a modern poetic reading, like a poet reading his own lines. But Luke's version takes place on the plains. And in Luke, Jesus spends all night on the mountain praying and then chooses his disciples and then comes down the mountain and walks right into this huge crowd of hopeful, curious, diverse, and needy people. Whereas Matthew's Sermon on the Mount can seem like an expression of ideological idealism and cosmic spirituality, the focus here is on real economic and social conditions. And on first response to Luke's version of the Sermon on the Plain, we all likely say ouch if we read it honestly. And then we run to Matthew's version. It feels much more spiritual and theoretical even poetic than this hard-hitting version in Luke. In Luke, the Beatitudes directly bless the abject poor. Matthew softens his words to the poor in spirit. Luke blesses the hungry. Matthew blesses those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then Luke comes out with his seemingly hardest-hitting lines. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. And I read that and I say or I feel, whoa, sounds harsh. What does woe mean? Am I being judged? Am I being put down? But the whole text perhaps instead might be saying I'm being cautioned. 
If this is a caution, then might it not be a caution for both the rich and the poor, that both the blessings and the woes are somehow a caution? Don't let your poverty make you think God doesn't care for you. God blesses you. And don't let your wealth make you think God cares for you more. I invite you to look at the image on the front of your bulletin. What awkwardness, judgment, and shame might the poor in this image be feeling? What awkwardness, judgment, avoidance, and guilt might the rich be feeling? And perhaps Jesus, standing between them, blessing one and confronting the other, is saying that poverty and wealth should always confront one another. They will always cause some discomfort, some awkwardness. But hold that confrontation within a community oneness and an awareness. It's an individual awkwardness, but it's also a collective awkwardness, and it confronts the distance between our ideology and our action, between what I believe in my mind and what I do. And this must be held, I want to say, in community. To illustrate, Barbara Brown Taylor tells a wonderful story when she was 21, and she was at the height of her intellectual studies and career, and she was in her lifelong Episcopal church reciting the creed. And she came across the lines, and I believe in the virgin birth, and burst out laughing. And then paused and thought, am I losing my faith? And she looked across the aisle at Mary, a friend of hers that she'd been in a Bible study with. And she knew that for Mary, the virgin birth was crucial. If that fell, the whole house of cards fell. And so she found herself thinking, Maybe I'll let Mary believe in the virgin birth for me right now. And she knew that for her, Barbara Brown Taylor, her whole orientation, her sense of calling, her sense of purpose, was centered on preferential treatment for the poor, the marginalized, the widows, the disenfranchised. But she also knew for Mary that Mary just thought those people should all go out and get a job. They were just a bunch of lazy people. That laziness created poverty. But for Barbara Brown Taylor, it was poverty that created laziness. And so she said, oh, okay, I'll believe in that for Mary right now. This is the collective tension of living between this paradox, these dissonances, these awkwardness. And here it is outlined between the rich and the poor. And most of us know that relative to the poor in Jesus' time, all of us are rich. In Jesus' time, this would have been in direct conflict with the temple system, including the priestly class, and certainly directly against the prevailing political and cultural entitlement. And yes, I know for us poor is also a relative term, but it's not for Luke. There are two Greek words used in Greek for poor, penas and tokas. Penas describes the working person, a person who works for a living the person who has nothing superfluous, the person who is not rich, but he's not destitute either. But that's not the word here in Luke. The word is tokos, absolute and abject poverty. The person who has nothing at all. The person who lives out of a shopping cart. In other words, 
blessed, Christ says, even happy, is the person who is abjectly and completely poverty-stricken. Blessed is the person who is absolutely destitute. Really. I don't think this is blessing poverty. Rather, it's blessing the person who has realized their utter hopelessness and helplessness and still somehow finds a way to put their whole trust in God. And I don't know what to do with that. It doesn't sound very blessed to me. You and I will likely not experience the poverty and despair that is outlined here in Luke. But all of us have experienced the places of loss that bring us to a reliance on our faith, that place where we recognize our utter helplessness. And often in the midst of our temptation with pride, something unexpected happens and we experience a despairing loss. And yet at other times, in the midst of our deepest despair, we suddenly feel an overwhelming sense of connection and even love. And so hesitantly, I share an experience of mine, but I ask you to find a parallel experience of yours. In 1983, or 1982, I owned a construction company here in this lovely town. I was just at the beginning of my big financial break, going into a subdivision that was going to make me wealthy and make us and our family secure and interest rates started to rise. And by the beginning of 83, we technically owned five homes. I was trying to sell four of them uh, and couldn't sell anything. And interest rates rose and rose to 24%. And I had 50% equity in all of those homes at one time, but equities dropped 60%. And so at the end, or by the middle of 1983, I realized I could not keep my business financially solvent. And naturally, when that happens, the bank and Revenue Canada grab things very quickly. And the creditors that were left were my subtrades, close friends, people that I had been loyal to me, people that I'd been loyal to. And I wanted to run and start a new life in Vancouver. My dear spouse said, no, you are going to visit every one of those creditors and tell them you can't pay them. And so in two days, I did. One of the hardest things I've ever done. 28 of them. And I arrived at the end of those two days, and I don't hardly remember this, but apparently I collapsed on the floor. And my 10-year-old son and my 8-year-old daughter gathered around, Daddy, what's wrong? And I found myself through my tears saying, Daddy and Mommy are going to lose everything, and Daddy doesn't know what he's going to do. Now here's the surprise. My little eight-year-old girl comes up to me, grabs my face, and looks me right in the eyes and says, but Daddy, you still have us. The blessings in Janine's words, they did not undo the suffering and the difficulty, but it did somehow transcend it. And it was something that carried me when the things I had built my success and my secure life on had disappeared. And so let's not look at this as blessing poverty and cursing wealth. If that's the case, we're all cursed. This is a message of blessing for all of us when we suffer 
to not suffer alone or in isolation, but to share in the abundance of love and community amidst the situations in our life where we can't avoid our helplessness. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the message, not necessarily a good text to follow for serious Bible study, but it's often a very accessible interpretation of the scripture's meaning for us today. Listen to how he phrases this text. Coming down off the mountain with them, he stood on a plain surrounded by disciples and was soon joined by a huge congregation from all over Judea and Jerusalem, even from the seaside towns of Tyre and Sidon. They had come both to hear him and to be cured of their ailments. Those disturbed by evil spirits were healed. Everyone was trying to touch him. So much energy surging from him. So many people healed. And then he spoke. You're blessed when, you lo when you've lost it all. God's kingdom is there for the finding. You're blessed when you're ravenously hungry because then you're ready for the messianic feast. You're blessed when tears flow freely and joy will come in the morning. So count yourself blessed every time someone cuts you down or throws you out, every time someone smears or blackens your name to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and that the person is uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Skip like a lamb if you like, for even though they don't like it, I do, and all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My preachers and witnesses have always been treated like this. But it's trouble ahead if you think you have it made. What you have is all you'll get. And it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself. Yourself will not satisfy you for very long. And it's trouble ahead if you think life's all fun and games. There's suffering to be met, and you're going to meet it. There's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others, saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Look how many scoundrel preachers were approved by your ancestors. Your task is to be true, not popular. And so no matter if you need a blessing today or a woe, a comforting arm on your shoulder or a kick in the butt, I ask you what you think this passage is saying to you today. Barbara Brown Taylor further says that these words are not prescriptive. It's not advice and it's not judgment. It's simply the truth about the way things work when spoken by someone who loves everyone. But I still feel conflicted. What am I supposed to do with this passage? Here in my healthy, happy, middle-class, white, privileged, first-world life. Maybe I'm being invited to admit that Jesus is right. Most of the time, I don't feel totally desperate for God. Why would I? I've got plenty to eat. My health is okay. I live in a comfortable home in a beautiful area. I live in an energizing and vibrant community that provides a full social, recreational, and an intellectual atmosphere. There isn't much that makes me feel urgent about ultimate things, about daily life and death realities. Much of the time, I find myself thinking about my next purchase 
or my next vacation. And perhaps Jesus is describing how our lives can become so full of stuff that there's no room for noticing the beauty and necessity of divine grace all around us. So I invite you this morning to look around you here in this place. Look at all these shining faces that make up this community. Let them bless you. Bless them back and live in the confronting and sometimes confusing embrace of that love. Frederick Beekner writes, the world says, mind your own business. But Jesus says, there is no such thing as our own business. So may we all sit with the blessings and the woes that represent the good uncertainty of living a life of love in our families, in our communities, and in the world, knowing that we are so loved that we choose to live in this tension of blessing and woe that confronts us. For only love can transcend that tension. Amen.